I want you to stop and say, if you're going to profess Jesus is Lord, that's not an insignificant proclamation. In the days of Caesar, there was one Lord, and if you crossed him, you died. To make a profession that Jesus is Lord is not an entry ticket into the park. It is a way you live your life. It is a proclamation of lordship. It's not a shortcut to get saved. You are listening to the Classes Podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. This semester, we are teaching through the Book of Romans to accompany our Sunday morning series. We hope this class helps you find completeness in Jesus. Hello, good evening. Good to see you guys tonight. I hope that you have had a great day. Today, we are continuing our path through Romans, and we are going to turn yet again another corner. Um, Hopefully, this will begin to really take all of what we've talked about and give it shape um, as it it starts to really... um, bring to bear what it means for us as we follow Christ. Um, But before we get into Romans 12, we're going to be in Romans 12 through 13 today. Um, We are going to just kind of recap what we talked about a little bit, 9 through 11, and spend a little bit of time talking about um, Israel. And then we have some questions people asked. But um, as usual, I want to start us off tonight just simply by speaking to God and asking that he just bless our time together. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, provide for us, again, just more wisdom, uh, more knowledge, more depth. God, as we look to understand uh, what you have been doing and what you're still doing right now in this present moment, God, that, uh, that we would understand what you've called us to be a part of, what you've equipped us to be a part of. And Father, we pray that love would be the dominant factor in it all that it would continue to both change the way we view ourselves and our neighbor and you. And Father, we just pray that in all these things, uh, you would give us a spirit of humility and open hearts as we uh, just really open up our hands to you tonight. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Uh, So tonight, some questions we got. Uh, We got a few. Uh, The first one we got is, how long do you think it took Paul to write Romans? And the short answer to that is, I have no idea. (laughs) But it takes about an hour to read it. So maybe that's about how long it took to write it. I don't know. It's a pretty sophisticated piece of writing. But I do know this. In Romans 16, uh, I think verse 22, it talks about how Paul actually used a scribe or a secretary of sorts to write this letter. It was written by Tertius, uh, who helped basically pen the letter for Paul, maybe as he spoke it for him to write down as they were going. You know, we don't know exactly the details of how that happened. Maybe Paul thought through each movement as the letter progressed, um, but it could have taken hours. It could have taken just, you know, however long the Holy Spirit wanted it to. But the point is not so much that... um, that this, was, that this was written to be necessarily a, a theological treatise of sorts, um, although it is. It was more, more than anything, it was written to be a letter to, to churches who were in need of, of pastoral care. And so um, however long that, that took, man, we're glad we have it, right? So uh, the next question we got, I'm going to throw this to you, Michael, um, is, is God still hardening the heart of the Jews in Jerusalem? They still celebrate all the feasts and are trying to rebuild the temple. So I think is in a general sense, you, I wouldn't, we would, we would want to say that there's no particular group of people that God is just always pushing them away from him. So if, if the question is, is God still hardening the heart of the Jews in Jerusalem? I would say the answer is no. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that God is not hardening the hearts of some Jews who happen to live in Jerusalem, you know? Um, so we talked about how the language of hardening in Scripture is a description of how God works in the life of one who is rebellious against him. So we're talking about a person who is actively resisting God, and God, after trying to communicate with them and trying to provide them with an opportunity to forgive and repent, if they persist in their rebellion, then he hardens them and their resolve against them. He sort of pushes them away from him. That's what the language means. And the goal is to demonstrate his justice and judgment. If you're going to to draw away from me, the result is that you're going to find yourself further from me. But there's also the hope of waking them up and calling them to repentance. Um, and that's, that's really, I think, how the hardening language should be understood. It's one of the ways the Bible talks about God pushing us away so that we might wake up and reach out and then he'll draw us in. So is God hardening specifically the Jews in Jerusalem? I would say no. Um, I don't think that that's a proper way to read these passages of scripture, um, but that once again, some of them might be in a position of being hardened individually or as families or whatever. Yeah. All right, Mark, throw this one to you. Question number three, if the body is made new, what about creation? Is it bad? Okay. Um, Remember, you have to separate the fact that the desires of the flesh are not the body's fault. Hmm. Okay. The appetites of the body are not intrinsically wrong. The desire for sex, for food, for sleep, all of those things are natural. Those are part of what God created you to be. When, when it talks about the body having to be recreated, does that mean it's bad? No, there was a lot of debate in philosophy that the, the body is purely evil and the spirit is what's holy and those two things are separate and they fight against each other. I don't tend to see that in scripture. I think that's a, a, a worldly take on it. Is creation bad? No, creation has been broken by sin. Uh, you might remember if you were here uh, Sunday when we talked about the restoration, that the world is not going to be reset until... All of this, is, it's going to all happen together. And so when God brings a new heaven and earth, my tendency, and you guys feel free to comment, my tendency is to believe God is either going to remake this entire place or he's going to make something very much like it that's going to be a paradise. He doesn't give us a lot of information about what that's going to look like or what heaven's going to be like or any of those factors. So he's told us, I'm going to do something amazing and you're not going to be able to understand it. It's cute that you try, mm-hmm. but don't wear yourself out with this. And so the new heaven and the new earth is not simply saying that by giving us new bodies, glorified bodies, and this glorified earth, that all of a sudden they were so corrupt and evil. No, we broke them, and he's going to restore them to what he intended them to be from the very beginning. Yes, good. All right, Michael. Uh, question four I'm throwing to you. How should Romans 9, 14 through 24 affect our prayer life? If God will make us who he wants to make us, then who or what should we pray to be like? This is a really big question, and I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge up top that we probably can't answer it thoroughly because it would take too long and get into too many different weeds. I would want to start by just saying that no matter how well we answer this question, inevitably making sense of prayer is going to require faith. Um, trying to think about how we're talking to a God who is beyond time and space and yet somehow listens to our prayers and yet knows the end from the beginning and yet, again, somehow listens to our prayers. Even if any of us could provide you with a perfect theological answer to this particular text, there still would be a part of us, a part of our mind going, okay, but how does this work again? And I just want to acknowledge that I think that's okay and appropriate. The other thing I'd say about this passage, again, just kind of staying away from getting into so many of the details, and it's a, I won't read the whole text, but it's a part where where 
Paul is using the analogy of a potter and clay to defend against the idea that God is being unfair by using Israel's sin and hardening them in their sin to bring about uh, the salvation through Jesus to the world. So they seem to be saying, he's saying to the Israelites, um, our sin was actually foreseen by God and he hardened us in our sin so that we would as a people, kill the Messiah so that salvation could extend. And they're like, well, if God did it, then, then what, 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 how is that fair? And he uses the imagery of the potter and clay because multiple of Israel's prophets has used that in past generations when Israel was finding themselves being punished for their sin in those situations. So a couple of things to keep in mind are, one, whatever these passages have to say about us as individuals, and they're certainly not irrelevant, The emphasis here seems to be, look at the way God is working with Israel as a nation in relationship to other nations. And so we're talking more about the corporate place of Israel within God's salvation plan than we are about how he works with this or that individual. And remember, Paul's primary point in this whole section is, when you look at Israel's history, what you see is that God makes promises and keeps them. And it's actually his promises that drive the story more so than who a person, what family a person was born into. And we see that God operates by grace and mercy as opposed to simply judging people by works. And we see that God actually works through the rebellion of some in order to bring about the salvation of all. So really what this passage is saying about God is he operates, he relates to you through Jesus in the way that the gospel lays out by grace through faith, by making promises and keeping them, and by somehow working all things together for the good. And those are the things that should drive our prayer lives. Those are the things that should, should invite us to bring our requests to him and trust that he can make sense of them. So I realize, I may, whoever answered that question, asked that question, I may not be answering all of the fine details, but I do think that that's the primary ways in which this passage should shape our approach to prayer. And I do think, just to add one thing is, you know, Romans 8, I think, is helpful in this in terms of what it's saying about what the Spirit's doing in our prayer life as well. Uh, The point is not that we always even know what to pray or what the results will be of our prayers, but that every time we go to God, there's someone else going there on, on our, with us. And it's, it is interceding on our behalf. And ultimately that's a good thing because even when we fail to recognize or know the will of God or who we should become, we have somebody else, an advocate there that is actually asking God to do what we need God to do, even when we don't need, know what we need him to do. And that's good news. Um, and one last thing is, I, I quote this all the time, but one of the things Tim Keller says is God answers our prayers in the ways that we would have asked had we, had we known what he knows. And that I think is a really helpful way to, to see what exactly he's doing in and through us. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus says, even when he's trying to explain prayer and he's trying to explain, um, you know, when you're asking God for things, he's like, well, he already knows what you need, right? But man, he loves to hear you being involved in what he's doing. And part of the beauty of prayer is being in alignment with what God's will already is. And we're going to get into that a little bit in chapter 12 as well. So uh, question number five for you, Mark, in Romans 9, 3, does Paul mean that he would give up his salvation if it meant others would be saved? It's, um, I would say it's emphatic affection is what Paul's doing here. Uh, in other passages, Paul says, I'm being poured out. Uh, literal or figurative? It's figurative. It's a language of affection. He's saying, I would give up my salvation for you to understand how important this is. 
He's talking about a group of people that were currently rejecting Jesus. And I think his bigger point is, I wish I were cursed and cut off for the sake of Christ if it would allow my people to understand all that God's done for them. That's one of those affectionate exaggerations that's figurative. It's not literal. So uh, I don't mean to be dismissive of the question, but just imagine you've all said something. I'd go to the ends of the earth for this person. Well, you probably wouldn't, Hmm. but you'd like to believe you would. And so Paul is saying, I want you to understand how important this is. I would give up my salvation if you understood what this meant. And it's just a a powerful moment because Paul does this in several of his letters in the New Testament where he uses language like this. I'm pouring myself out. I'm suffering daily. I'm dying daily for you to know how important this is. And so I think it's a beautiful statement of his, but he doesn't get to control that. So there's nothing Paul could have done to give his salvation to another person if, if that's part of the question you were asking. Last question we got was, how many people use Romans 10, 9, that all there is to salvation is to say the prayer? So if you remember in uh, Romans 10, it, it is specifically is talking about preaching the gospel and, and for those who call upon the name of the Lord, essentially. Um, and it says in, in verse 9, let's see, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, and so... I'm assuming this question is specifically um, as a result for some people who, you, you guys may have heard this before. There are people who say, all right, you know, who's going to give their life to Christ? You know, they want to see salvations happen. And so they want to ask that anyone would say that this prayer, you know, of like, of, of making this confession of faith. And maybe they'll even have people raise their hand. Maybe you've been a part of a church that has done that before. Um, it tends to be a part of the Baptist den- denomination. So I don't know how many people use Romans 10, 9 to, to justify that. Probably a lot if, they're, if they are using that theology um, in general, but um, hard to quantify exactly how many people. I will say this though. One thing that I think we should guard against is, um, is categorizing anyone into a specific sort of like, well, that's what they believe about this thing, you know? Um, Because here, and here's, here's my small point to make the major point. My small point is I'm actually going to a Baptist school right now. Um, And Baptists usually um, are the ones that people have talked about who will say, you know, we got to say the prayer and then you're good. You have salvation. It's a get out of hell ticket, you know? Um, But as I've gone to the, to the school, I will tell you that I have not met one person who believes that. Not one person. In fact, I was in a discussion online and um, we were talking about folk religion, which I won't get into the details of, but the whole point is what are these kind of magical sayings or incantations or things that like we say, like maybe like people mention like in Jesus name, like something that's sometimes something we tag onto the end of the like prayer magic. without actually, yeah, yeah, thinking about what it does or why we say it. It's, you know, we just hope that that means Jesus will answer it or something. Um, and, and every single person in my class, I'm like the only person that's not a Baptist in this class, but every single person said, actually, this was one of the folk religion things that people think about Baptists and that some Baptist churches do, but actually there's like significant amount of Baptist churches that don't, that don't believe that, that don't, that don't actually see it that way. And so my bigger point, I think that we need to even grasp from, from this type of question is actually to say that just because one Baptist church does something like that, doesn't mean all Baptist churches do. And there might even be one different other denomination that does something similar. And we should be very careful about generalizing any sort of, um, denomination or even just the, the, my bigger point is like the church, you know, have you ever heard that when we're, you're like, well, the church does this, the church does that. And it's like, how many churches have you been to that you can make a definitive statement like that, you know? And so my, my, actually my caution for, for any of us is that we pigeonhole anyone into this idea that because we've seen it happen, that's how it must be all the way 
around all the time. You know, the reality is that there are some churches that have ministers who have maybe some of these um, outlier beliefs like this, but most people don't think that salvation is a get out of hell ticket that I have met within those types of discussions. Um, and so even though those people might exist, we should never pigeonhole a whole generalization or a group, yeah, into that. Um, but a, a good question nonetheless. Can I so, say one point yeah. on that too? That phrase, believe in your heart that, that, that God raised Jesus from the dead, is, is, e- is, is actually easy to say and, and really not think much about what we're saying. And it's a time when it's helpful to actually think about the words. So uh, believe, we know, doesn't just mean, well, I th- I'm going to check a box. It means that you entrust yourself to God in some way. So to believe in your heart, think about if we were to translate that, to trust at your core, because that's really a way of getting at what Paul's saying yet. To trust at your core that God has overcome death by raising Jesus as a promise of what he'll provide for all of us. Personally, we can all fall into the trap of, oh yeah, I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, so I'm a Christian and, and me and God are fine. Well, maybe, first of all, you're saved by grace, so amen. But maybe you and God are not fine if you're not actually walking in trust at your core that this is the meaning of the world, that God raised Jesus from the dead and us too, so. Yeah. I think if we can take in Jesus' name as sometimes an addendum to the, that's how you finish a prayer. Um, we have found out, I'm going to tell a granddaughter story, okay? We found out that my granddaughter will tell her mom and dad, it's time to eat. She'll look at him and say, amen, because she's now realized that she doesn't get fed till they pray. Uh-huh. So she starts the prayer so that they'll feed her. I like this kid. That's funny. Okay? But in that moment, when I want you to stop and say, if you're going to profess Jesus is Lord, that's not an insignificant proclamation. Right. In the days of Caesar, mm-hmm. there was one Lord, and if you crossed him, you died. To make a profession that Jesus is Lord is not an entry ticket into the park. It is a way you live your life. Amen. It is a proclamation of lordship. It's not a shortcut to get saved. So I... Just appreciate somebody's hungry down here. They're saying they uh, yeah. So. <laughs> uh, well, Michael, why don't you take us through a recap of nine through eleven? And, sure, and then we'll jump into chapter twelve. Yeah, and, and I'll try to be brief about it um, here as well. So, in nine through eleven, Paul is turning his attention to um, kind of an, a stain on his T-shirt, so to speak. So he's um, let me drop that metaphor. Paul's tried to argue all through Romans, that God has saved us through Jesus, and this is amazing. And this actually shows that God is consistent with all of the promises he made to Israel. And when he gets to chapter 9, he's acknowledging that, now I can say all this, but I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of Jews, a lot of my people, a lot of Israelites who don't believe. So this is sort of like, if God really did fulfill what he said, then how come most of those who were his people are saying no thanks to the Messiah? And so this whole section is Paul lamenting that fact, but then ultimately explaining that how God has actually been consistent and faithful and righteous and reliable, and in the end, um, bringing us all to worship. So the point of the whole thing, remember, is job plan. Jesus was always the plan. And in chapter 9 of Romans, Paul walks back through the story of Israel from all the way from Abraham through the exile and shows that the way God worked with Israel actually matches the way God is now working with all the world through Jesus. Then in chapter 10 of Romans, he's saying, now the present moment that we're in is one where exactly what the Old Testament said would happen is happening. Some Israelites believe, but not all of them. Some Gentiles believe, but not all of them. Everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead in their core is going to be saved. So in the past, you see consistency. At the present, you see that the plan worked. And then chapter 11 is about how the plan's going to keep on working. 
that God is right now um, drawing Gentiles in and hoping that the Jews see Gentiles experiencing all the blessings they've been looking forward to. And hopefully that incites a little bit of proper jealousy. And they're saying, well, I want those blessings. And then they're maybe opening up a possibility of turning to the Lord Jesus. So that's really kind of how the whole thing lays out. There is one other detail that we wanted to clarify because we didn't get to it in, uh, the other day. You know, there's a, a statement that for some is really important and for others is really strange that occurs in verse 26. And I'll read verse 25 and 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So that phrase, in this way, all Israel will be saved, is one of the controversial statements in Romans in the sense that multiple people take it in different ways. And to be fairly brief, some people say that what this means is that at the end times, there will be a miraculous, um, you know, kind of full wide scale salvation of Jewish people. And that's how we'll know that we're about to the end. Um, And that's what, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Uh, I think that's a misunderstanding of the verse, and we're of one mind on this. And um, what we think is that actually Paul is shifting his use of the word Israel within that one sentence. So he says in 25 that Israel has experienced a hardening in part. So at that point, we're talking about ethnic Israel has experienced this partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. We think that the second time Paul uses the word Israel, he's actually not referring anymore to ethnic Israel, but he's referring in more general terms to the people of God. And now what he means by that is what he's been arguing the whole book, which is Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus are now the people of God. They are now Israel. So when he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, what he's saying is that God is working through the Gentiles to pull the Jews, through the Jews to pull the Gentiles. He has a plan to pull all to himself who will believe in him. And in this way, all who belong to him will in in fact experience salvation. That's what he means, we think. And if you're thinking, well, why would he use the word in the same sentence in two different ways? We wanna remind you of what we said at the beginning of our exposition of this text, which is that you have to remember chapter nine, verse six, where Paul says, it is not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So in that one sentence, he's using the word Israel twice, once to refer to ethnic Israel and once to refer to in this more um, maybe spiritual sense of the people of God. For not all who descend from ethnic Israel are members of the people of God. So he set us up at the beginning of this statement to know that he's gonna redefine the meaning of the word Israel. And then when you come to the end of this section, he actually completes that. And if we've been paying attention in Romans and we have, we're not at all surprised by this because this is what he did with the word Jew in chapter two. A Jew is not one who is a Jew. A Jew is not a Jew who's one outwardly, but inwardly. He did this to the concept of circumcision. It's not about your foreskin, it's about your heart. He did this with the phrase children of Abraham in chapter four. It's not the ethnic descendants of Abraham, but it's the faith descendants among Jews and Gentiles who believe in God as Abraham did. And now he's doing the same thing with Israel. So this isn't about an end time mass salvation of Jewish people. This is about the fact that God will draw all who believe in him to himself and in the end secure their salvation. So that's uh, something that we wanted to clarify because we didn't get to in time. Is that fair enough? Is that enough said on it? Yeah, I think so. You guys can obviously ask questions later if you want to. Absolutely, yeah. Write down anything that you might have questions about or even just we'll take questions a little bit later too. But um, there are other texts, I think, as well that support this idea um, of Paul seeing both the Jews and Gentiles no longer as two distinct types of people, but actually 
they find they both find their identities renewed because they have they are being found in Christ. And actually, we're going to see that in chapter 12 as yeah. well. So let's read it. It says this in 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us had one, has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the, to the grace given to each of us. If your if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. I got you. Hold on. In there we accordance go. with your faith. <laughs> it is, if it is uh, serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encourage, if it is to encourage, then encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And we'll stop there. So obviously the first two verses of Romans 12 are rich. You know, they're ones that uh, you probably have heard before. Probably even maybe they have tattooed on you. I don't know. But it, I mean, this is a powerful verse because it really does put into perspective everything we have said thus far. And I know Mark, Mark and I were, um, and Michael were talking about this in the green room and Mark had so many good things to say that I'll let you, I want you to lead out on this. Finally one. have something good to say. <laughs> um, here's what I, uh, I have made this mistake in the past and I, I'm not presuming you will, but I want to correct a mea culpa for all the years of preaching. I have often said that when you get to chapter 12 through chapter 16, Paul, this is the practical part of Romans. I don't want to say that anymore because I'm afraid that diminishes the impact of it. It's not like Paul was talking about the important stuff. Now he's talking about the day-to-day -day stuff. It's like when you take a sermon, you have to make a practical application at the end. Some texts don't let you make a practical application. Some texts just simply say, think about this. Deal with it. There's nothing you can do. Just ponder the immensity of this text. What I want to say now, when you get to chapters 12, specifically through 15, this is the consequences of God's mercy. This is how we now live because of everything that's preceded. Every argument. We are the new Israel. We're the church. We're God's called people. You take every chapter that we have plowed through and talked about on Sundays and on Wednesdays as you're pondering and reading and going through the journal that Elijah wrote, which is pretty fantastic, right? When you go through that, I want you to understand when Paul gets to this point, when he says, therefore, by the mercy of God, he is saying something so amazing. I don't want you to change the channel like you're looking at a new show. I want you to understand if everything Paul has said is true, that when he gets to 12, this is how we live because of his mercy. This is what it looks like to have experienced salvation. So I'd like to say it's the practical consequences of God's goodness to us through Jesus. And I, I love, you know, um, just this beginning. Therefore, like everything that we've read to this point is there for this. 
in view of God's mercy, when you see God's mercy clearly, it is so wonderful. It will change everything. I remember when I was having my first son, and I don't know if you guys remember Brian Johnston, um, him and Juliet Johnston, they used to go to church here. They moved away, um, but they were awesome. And they had like seven or eight kids. <laughs> and he was telling me about having kids. And I was like, I'm going to listen to him, you know, because he's got a lot of them. <laughs> so he has wisdom. But one of the things he said was, when that child is born, it will blow your, any expectations you have out of the water. It really does go above and beyond what you could possibly like imagine, you know? And I, and I, I, you know, like I always get worried when people tell me that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It's like when somebody wants to show you a YouTube video and you're like, oh my gosh, I hope that, I hope I think this is funny. You know, <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. It's like when you open a gift in front of somebody and you're like, thank you, you know? And so I always get nervous when the expectations are high. And I remember like being there for my son's birth and it just blew me away. It truly was so wonderful that I was never the same. And to me, this is in part what Paul is trying to do here. When you look at everything God has accomplished, it will become so wonderful for you that you will simply not remain the same. You will become something totally different, something totally new. Your mind will be changed. Your beliefs will be changed. The way you see people and the world will start to become in alignment with how God sees people in the world. That's how big this is, to see Christ and, and the person and work of all that he's done. He's saying it changes us. In view of that mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I love that idea of a living sacrifice because it's totally oxymoronic, I think, in a way. Like you, a sacrifice is like something that becomes dead and yet you're living. And it's kind of, I think, pointing to this idea that there's resurrection power already in there. You know, they're like, even though you're offering yourself to God as an offering, as something that should become dead, you're still alive. You're still actually doing everything he needs you to do. You have, your entire self is now being laid on the altar for God and yet still surviving because of the resurrection power in you. That's what Romans 8 is like all about. Like when the spirit comes and takes up residence in you, and even though your body is dead, there's still something that makes it alive. There's the spiritual aspect of what God is doing in and through you. And he's saying, because of that, you are now holy and you, are now, you can now become pleasing and you can now become changed totally. You are now at the mercy of God and it's because of the mercy of God. And you're totally okay with that. And then it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So again, your mind being changed. We talked a little bit about this in terms of worldview. You know, like where you just, it's not that you are just trying to be good, but like you actually just start seeing the world in ways in which you want to be good, in which it just starts to become second nature, habitual. You know, it becomes more like your drive to work than it does like when you're trying to drive through a city you've never been in. You know, when you're trying to drive through a city you've never been in, you're just trying to figure out where the one-way streets are and making sure you don't turn down them and then where you, to park at and all this stuff. And but when you're driving from, from just home to work, that same drive you do every day, it's just part of your reality. That's what he's talking about, where your mind simply becomes changed to the point where the goodness that God has done in you is now being produced through you and it's just a part of who you are. When you see the word bodies, I don't want to make too much of this, but if you look at in verse one there, when you see the word bodies there, I want to take you back to hearken to chapter one of Romans. Because in a world today that says, doesn't matter what I do with my body, it's what I do with my heart. Uh, I'm, I'm not 
I'm not making fun of it, but I want to diminish that argument because here, our bodies, so the question that I was asked at the very beginning, our bodies, the earth, the renewal of those, the restoration, the recreation of those, why? Our bodies have always been, even in sinful states, a vessel by which God is worshiped and which he is displayed. It says here that we, under the mercy of God, get to now use our bodies in a more consecrated way than we've ever been able to before. The way we live our lives, the physical living out of our lives is an act of worship. But right now, I I love what you did there. When you compare bodies, now renew your mind. We have to sometimes remind ourselves of what God's already said. And that is the way we display our lives is a statement of worship. Our world is telling us, no, it's not. We We have to hold on to this. The renewing of our mind is yes. The way we live out our lives is a statement of our consecration, and it's a statement of bringing God glory and honor in the way that we display ourselves. I, like I said, I, my running line is I don't want to make too much of it, but I also don't want to make too little of it. So when you see that there, the mind and the body, both of those things are useful in God's hands, and they need to be dedicated to him because of his mercy and his renewal in us. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd like to build directly on some of the comments you guys are making and just say a few think, more things about this wonderful text. I really do think from a, just a practical life standpoint, whenever you find yourself at a place where you're thinking, I just really want to grow. I just want to be more than I am right now. I want to be better than I am right now. And, and I want to know how to do that. I think that this is one of the, the best places to go to get a framework for um, how to actually allow God to change your life. And it comes back to so many of the things that you're saying right now. Uh, you know, you have, um, yeah, that's right, got to use the whiteboard. <laughs> You've got, uh, I, want, I want to put together some of these different body pieces in a way that I think will, will give an overview of, of how we become who we are. So here you've got this call, first and foremost, to consecrate your bodies. So you've got the body. And that's really just a way of saying, do good things, do God-honoring things. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice is to do the things that God wants you to do. Uh, but it's not just the body alone, it's also the mind. Uh, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And these two things work in tandem with one another. And uh, if you want to grow in the Lord, then the best way to do that is to do good things and meditate on the truth. And at some level, it really is that simple. And of course, in between the body and the mind, biblically, is the heart. Now, the heart is not just about your emotions, but it's about your trust. It's about your loves. And so the gospel is that God's actually changed your heart and filled you with the Spirit so that you, you have this deep desire to, that you want God and you want good things, but you've got to actually step in and consecrate your body and, and, and think with your mind and allow it to be renewed. So a couple other uh, quick points I would want to make here. I think, Mark, this is a great way to, to defend your point that Paul's not just now getting practical. I don't know if you guys remember whenever we talked about Romans chapter 6, it's all about how um, you've been freed from sin because you died with Jesus in baptism. So just as he's dead to sin, so you're dead to sin. And he says in 611, uh, count or calculate yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, and then consecrate the parts of your bodies uh, to God, the different parts for righteousness, for holiness. So I think right there, he's kind of given us a framework that he wants to flesh out right here. So calculate the truth of the gospel, think about it, meditate on it, draw some conclusions about yourself based on what you're reading in these texts, and then put it into practice. Now, if you only do one or the other, you're going to find yourself stuck. Because if you just obey, but you don't think about the gospel, you're going to fall into a legalism trap. But if you just think about things, I just, I believe this, but I'm not actually living it out, then you're just going to find yourself either spiritually constipated or not really caring about the Lord, you know, because if you don't train your body, then it's not going to work. 
Um, a couple other things too in this text is it follows on the heels of don't be conformed to this world. So there's like an old way of thinking and doing, and we're replacing it with a new way of thinking and doing. And the last detail is, um, I don't know what all the translations say, but in mine it says, then you will be able to test and approve what is the Lord's will. That's a word I'd like to draw your attention to because I think it shows how your transformation is not just, I want to be a good boy, I want to be a good girl, but it's actually, in keeping with Mark's sermon this Sunday, a restoration of who you were always intended to be. And I think this word shows that. Do you remember, you can look, out if, look it up if you want to, but I'll, 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 I'll tell you the verse. I don't know if you remember, in Romans 1.28, Paul says, and since you didn't think it worthwhile, or since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind or an unfit mind. I don't know what your translation says, but can you kind of think about that line in your mind? 128, just as people didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so he gave them over to an unfit, depraved mind, a mind that doesn't work anymore. I'm gonna give you a Greek word, okay? Everybody say, adokimos. Very well done. Like 10 of you did it and you sounded great, okay? That's the word in Romans 128. Here in Romans 12 too, when it says, then you'll be able to test and approve God's will, the word is, Dokimazo. Everybody say dokimazo. So it's the same word, just verb noun. So like political, apolitical means not political. Adokimas means it doesn't do something. Dokimas means it does something. And what it does is, is it retains the, the capacity to draw conclusions about how life should be lived based on who God is. In view of God's mercy, here's the way to roll. So this text really is a beautiful framework that I think gives us an understanding of how we can grow. I would also say if you've, ever done, if, you, if you've ever done counseling and you've heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, I think cognitive behavioral therapy is actually a decent resource. I'm not saying it's a Christian thing, but it's a decent resource that actually fleshes out a very biblical Pauline way of thinking about the way we're formed as human beings, what you think, what you do. Um, all right, so let's move on to verse three. So it says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly uh, than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And this is, again, partly to say that he's partly going back to what he's already been saying to the Jews and Gentiles both, right? Like at the end of the day, you're, everyone has this way in which they can claim superiority over another person or in which they will try to. I mean, they don't, you know, actually have a way to claim superiority. And, and in fact, now he's looking forward and he's saying, I want you to know that actually God's given you some things in which that's still going to be a temptation because of the gifts that he's enabled you to have and the faith that he's enabled you to have. And it says, for just if each of us was, has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, though many form one body. So we're saying now that we belong to Christ, again, this is kind of what we were talking about with all Israel, that again, we all come into Christ uh, who is like our head. This is what it talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 2, that there has been a uniting of Jews and Gentiles into Christ so that he is the head and we are the limbs and the fingers and the toes. And we are actually now being used to accomplish his will here on earth. And, and because of that, we know that a finger does different things than an elbow. And we know that a nose has different, you know, uh, abilities than a foot, you know, like those, th and those things are good. Like that diversity and unity is necessary. The diversity of the body makes it so we can walk and run and throw and do all these things. The unity of the body means that we'll never have to be separated from those abilities and from the, the conveniences, comforts, and the beauty of what those things were all supposed to entail. And now he gets into what these different gifts are. He talks about prophesying. He talks about serving. He talks about teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, 
and mercy. And all of these really, he winds together with this idea of love, that all of these things are supposed to be done in love. Um, But I do want to talk about a little bit of these gifts um, because I think that if there's one thing that I know as a pastor when I talk to people is that they have questions when they come upon these passages, like what gift do I have, yeah. you know? And so I actually do think it's helpful to to kind of just talk a little bit about these gifts, what what their the purpose of them is, and maybe help you try to discern uh, what gift the Spirit has given you. Because I think one thing that this passage makes clear, in addition, 1 Corinthians 12 does as well, and so does Ephesians 4, is that all of us have gifts. Every single person in this room, if, as long as you belong to God, uh, you have a gift that the Holy Spirit wants to utilize. Let me interview you a little bit because I appreciate your perspective on this in our previous talks, off stage, off camera, whatever it is. Um, answer me the question, why do I have the gifts before you help me understand the different kinds? I, I think the purpose of the gifts is the exact, is really, you can see it in the illustration that Paul is giving of the body. They are to edify the body and they are to edify the world around the body, but they are primarily for the body itself. Like primarily, like if the head has hands and feet, it is to serve the mind in which those things are supposed to be, be operating. And so our gifts are primarily for our body. And then ultimately we, the, our body can become a blessing to the external world. Right. And so What's important and what I think Paul's sitting on too is that they can never become about you. It doesn't make any sense that a hand would become beautiful just for the sake of your, a hand, you know? The point is that the hand lends itself to the utility and beauty of the body itself. And so that's what the, the spirit, that's what the, the, the gifts are for from the spirit is to ultimately enact the will of God through unique um, uh, I don't want to say talents because I don't always think talents are the exact same as the spiritual gifts, um, but abilities, yeah, is a better word for it, um, that you can utilize to edify this group of people and even everyone else around you. So yeah, I appreciate that because a lot of times when people ask what their gifting is, they're trying to figure out, do I have a good gift or a weaker gift? Right. And when you answer the question why you're gifted, and, you know, every gift by, that God gives us, I think, is meant to be given away. And the beauty of the gift is that by giving it away, we find fulfillment. And so if it's for others, it takes away the whole consumer mindset of American church. Where I like to go to that church because it makes me feel good and it gives me what I want. But what are you providing those that are giving you what you want? This isn't me, make, this isn't a guilt trip. Please understand my heart. But if we're going to understand what gifts are, we need to understand why God gives them to us. And I think that what you even see, um, I'd love to have your voice in this too. I think what you see even within these gifts is this ability to um, hear the will of God and then ultimately love with that will of God. Like that's kind of where they're all leading to. And some of these ways um, that we're even seeing like mercy and generosity, those are meeting some of the basic foundational needs that people have just in the church, in our communities, all of those types of things. Um, And like I said, this isn't an exhaustive list, you know? So if you're like, I don't feel like any of those are me, you know, I, I don't even know that there is an exhaustive list. I think at the end of the day, and, and this is, you know, we, we preached a series on the Holy Spirit. I don't remember when that was, but it was probably two, two years ago, maybe three years ago. And um, the biggest thing that you have to remember um, and that I have to remember, I have to remind myself of, 
is that the Holy Spirit is not a power. It is a person. And you don't wield the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wields you. You are the blade in his hand. He is not the blade in yours. That is good. why oh, we don't good. just like go and make, <laughs> that's yeah. why we don't just I'm go and make miracle, <laughs> miracles happen. And we don't just like go and, and just act like we have total agency over the spirit to do what we want when we want the spirit to do it. No, the spirit uses us whenever it wants to do it. Whenever it decides that it wants to accomplish a specific and unique purpose. And without that concept, we can get really frustrated because we try to force the spirit to do what, what, really is totally in his will and sovereignty to, to pursue. So I don't have much to add. Uh, I just, you had mentioned the passages. I just threw the, pa- the chapters of the Bible up there that give a list of gifts. Um, so I guess to ever so brief, I think Paul gives seven gifts here on purpose because he is saying, you know, all of you completely have what's needed to take care of each other. It's not because like he said, this is an exhaustive list. It can't be because the other lists don't match. So what I don't think you should do with these texts is to make a master list and say, which ones am I good at? Instead, I would say, practically speaking, tell me if you guys think this is an appropriate way to frame it. I think the question you should be asking is, when I look around at the church, do I see any needs that I'm, I'm capable of meeting? Even if it's a bit of a stretch, is there anything out there that I could do that could help? And in that particular moment, that's the gift. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever's going to enable you to help one another. And then worry about sort of finding your sweet spot as you proceed. But continuing to adopt this posture of service is so critical in this. And don't hear this limited to your local congregation. No, 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 no. It is kingdom. Yep. So you can help other churches. You can help people that don't go here. Mm -hmm. You can help parachurch organizations. You can help at the schools. You guys know this. I just want to encourage you. We limit it so much. We hear the word church and we think our own little group, yeah, you're needed here. Trust me. Uh, But man, if there's an opportunity for you to step in and bless somebody who's a part of the kingdom and those that aren't, that's why we're here. Every single one of us. I like to also frame it in three different types of um, ideas. And so this is actually on our Pathways website. And so if you guys have ever access that or utilize it, cco.church slash pathways. There's all kinds of resources on there, but this idea of gifting is one of them. So I like to categorize into three different aspects, calling, gifting, and needs. So gifting is something that God has has specifically um, enabled you to do, an ability that the Spirit uses you for in the church to edify the church. Again, not just Christ church, but the church, the global church. Um, and our community. Calling is those specific opportunities that God is calling you in particular to do for something. Um, and Tim Keller gives a metric. Uh, I'm just always going to call. I mean, he's, he's got one more and then he's done with Keller for tonight. <laughs> There's a quota. There's, <laughs> There's a limit. A quota, yeah. Um, but Keller gives this really helpful metric. He says, um, to, to try to identify things that you're gifted at, passionate about, and have opportunity for. And when those three things align, that's usually what God is calling you to do. Now, of course, that's not, you know, foolproof, but I think it's really a helpful metric to see the lens by which you can try to identify your calling Um, and recognizing that your calling is not a static thing. It's dynamic, meaning God will call you to different things at different times. And sometimes you'll, that'll mean like for for me, I've served as a worship minister here for um, 
eight years before I transitioned into a teaching pastor role because I felt like God was calling me to something different. And the doors were open and I felt like all of those things aligned. Um, So that's the calling. The gifting is, again, trying to look at these things and trying to identify um, what things tend to be something that you find the Holy Spirit often uses you for. Um, and you'll, you, th- reading these lists, you'll, you'll find something. And if not, you can come ask us. We'll try to help you. And the other thing is just need-based, just like Michael said. See the need, meeting the need. And that's just not just in the church. That's not just out in your community. I mean, it's literally everywhere. It's just recognizing that you are now serving because of the Holy Spirit, and you're doing so because of the love that that Holy Spirit is producing in you for the other, which is really what this entire passage is about. Just give me 30 seconds. I'm going to be embarrassed because he gave you the metrics of Tim Keller when it comes to calling. I want to talk to you about gifting, and I'm going to give you just my terminology and do with it what you want. But I found this has been helpful, especially working with high school kids going into college who wonder where their their gifting is. You discover your gifting. You have to discover it by using it. So I'll give you three simple tests. Throw them away if they're too simple. Number one, does your tail wag when you get the opportunity to do it? Does it feel like you, like it's natural? It may be hard and it may be scary, but if your heart moves when you're serving, second of all, how do people respond when you do it? Is, and third, can God be seen? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very vulnerable here, and I hope it's not too much. I never was going to be a preacher. I'm not even sure I still want to be a preacher, but I found myself preaching. And what I found was I actually enjoyed it. And people would come up and say things to me that I thought they were just being kind. But at the end of the day, something I was doing when I was enjoying myself was actually helping them find God. And at the end of it, they were thanking God for it. At the end of the day, I don't think I'm special. I just think I found something God helped me be able to do. Does that make sense? The calling is universal, but you're gifting. So if you try to do something for God and it's not in your gifting, you've not wasted one single second. But the people that are waiting till they're certain never get to experience the joy of discovering that maybe God will give you an opportunity that he's gifted you in that moment to do. And man, you have a great life when you find those things. And gifting, and even in like the gifting calling, those things usually go together. You know what I mean? Like that's, the reality is, I try to, I think to be precise, they're different, but the reality is they usually go together. And so does the need, right? So it just depends on exactly how we're categorizing it. Nexus. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. We got to keep going because it's 7.30 and we are only halfway through. So let's go to verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So uh, what I think might be helpful um, in the interest of, of getting the big picture of 12 and 13 and I asked these guys to put a camera on the whiteboard, and they, I better use it enough, or else they're going to be upset at me. So, use, I am. I was saving the left side for this. So, let me give you what I think is at least one way of thinking about the various sections in chapters 12 and 13. You've seen me do this, do, you've seen this kind of thing before. I don't think this is always how Paul communicates, but I think it sometimes is how he communicates. So, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, 
you've got this initial statement about, um, really, it's, it's this. It's offer your mind and body to God in light of what God has done. Don't be like the world, but instead do things a new way. And then I really think that in 12, uh, 3 through 13, we're talking about loving the church. So the insiders. And the first part of that is you love the church by exercising your gifts. We've talked about this. Then you love the church deeply and sincerely. Love sincerely. And then you have the things in 9 through 13 that Vinny said. And then I think that really we turn our attention in 12, 14 through 20 to, uh, to loving outsiders. So there's the word love specifically people who aren't a big fan of us, people who may be coming after us as the church. And then in the middle, you have 1221, which is to, I'm gonna go good over evil, overcome evil with good. And then whenever you come to the next section, you've got a paragraph about how we should act toward governing authorities, which is another way of talking about our treatment of outsiders. We're not talking about the church. We're talking about those over us now. And then you come after that to 13, 8 through 10. And once again, it's about loving one another. And now if you love one another, you've actually fulfilled the commands and demonstrated that God is faithful by living out the law. And then the last piece is 13, 11 through 14, which lo and behold comes back to offering your minds and bodies to God instead of doing things the world way, world's way in light of what God has done and anticipating what God will do. So if you rack up and look at this entire section as a whole, I think Paul's giving a lot of specific teachings as well as a bigger framework that really what we're trying to do is to obey God thoroughly, mind and body. And we express this by loving one another within the church and by demonstrating proper love toward those outside the church. We love our enemies and we submit to the governing authorities. And in all these ways, we actually overcome evil with good which is one more way that Paul is saying that in the church, what you see is the undoing of the problem of sin. So the dokimazo word was part of it. The way the sin process works is it turns you into people who actually can't tell the difference between evil and good. And now your mind is being transformed so that you're part of a community that's actually overcoming evil with good right there at the center. So we become a picture of the type of humanity God always wanted when we engage in these ways. So that's the framework. And so that, the section that you just read, Elijah, I would say is really about, here's how to treat people who don't like you very much. And as you said, as you said in your prayer, like love just keeps coming back to love. We love our enemies because Jesus said to, and this is how it plays out in Rome and at that time and place. Okay, this is- uh... Also, we had a really good devotion from one of our own whose name I won't say because it will embarrass her on living at peace with all people. So good. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm just curious, you're deep in Leviticus having just taught it oh, for yeah. next level. Isn't this the echoes of of the law and the principles of so. the law, how we interact with one another? Once again, I'm going to keep ringing this bell till you ring it for me. The Old Testament resounds in the New Testament. And Paul is actually drawing us back to the core belief of what it was to be God's chosen people called out of the world to be a witness to the glory of it all. It's not perfect. You're not going to find verse for verse, but many of these uh, tomes that are found in Romans are are just being reiterated from Leviticus. Amen. I don't know if you have you ever heard that Will Williman, there's a guy named William Williman who was the dean at uh, the, the School of Divinity at Duke University for a long time. And he talks about how he would have young people come into it. He would always interview the freshmen and he would have you know, these young people come in and say, hey, I'm not really a religious person. Like I'm not really into the Old Testament. I just really, I just go with what Jesus said, love God and love people. And in his mind, he's laughing because when Jesus said, love God more than anything, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. And when he said, love one another, he's quoting from Leviticus. And so it's so true. 
and I think hilariously ironic that the command love one another, that we all love so much, that's the one part of the Bible that everybody loves, is literally a quotation of the one book that people most want nothing to do with because it's all ritually and stuff. So yeah, dude, absolutely. All right, we're going to continue on, try to knock 13 out, which great time to, to talk about this because our election time is next week. So who should we vote for? <laughs> Please tell us. <laughs> you can write me in. Just kidding. Oh, that'd be funny. Come on, y'all. We got a decent-sized church. We could at least get them on the city council or something. That'd be good. Here's what it says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free... Uh, from fear of the one in authority, then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh." Mark, do you want to speak in a bit about uh, about that? Nope. <laughs> um, authority. It's a, this is challenges America's soul, right? Um, we'll submit to authority that we agree with. And Paul is saying that the way we live out under the authority, for as much as the government, I know you're worried about me saying this, Elijah, <laughs> as, as much as the government can't get out of its own way, what it does provide is so necessary. Paul wants you to appreciate that. And I want you to remember, and, and you can make the distinction here in a second, Elijah. I want you to remember what kind of Roman authority Paul was under when he wrote this. As bad as you may think we have it, ain't nothing like he had it. And yet, led by the Holy Spirit, what did he call God's people to do? Be good citizens. And good citizens aren't so concerned always about what's best for them. They're considered about what's best for everybody. We just went through a period of time about two years ago, didn't we? That I couldn't get a polling of agreement in this room right now. But it was never about what's best for everybody. Everybody was saying, I don't have to do what I don't want to do. And it's, this really challenges the soul of all of us. So it's about authority and how we respond to authority and what God's purpose for authority in our life is. And I don't think anything challenges the American church more than saying you need to submit to authority. Now, I'm going to confess right now, if, you're not, if that doesn't offend you, then you're unlike me. Because these two will tell you, because I confess to them, 
you tell me I have to do something, that's the last thing in the world I want to do. It's not a godly character. It's an American character. And as much as I love my country, I need to get that out of me because it's not serving the purposes God's created me for. It, in fact, it deters my witness. So that's the overarching. The first seven verses are about authority, submission to authority, and why God has put it in place. Now, you correct where I'm wrong. Well, I think maybe just a caveat, something um, maybe just to help with this idea is nothing that happens is not under the sovereignty of God. Not one thing. Every single thing God is in control of. And the church is never, ever at risk of being expunged. Like this is God's world. He is the king. He is the ruler. He is the Lord of all. And so in some level, we should find comfort in knowing that even this system of government that Paul is talking about, which was, had significant moral issues, you know, like this was written and probably about seven years later-ish, Nero would be putting Christians on spikes to be burned alive. He's not talking to, to people who don't understand what it means to be oppressed by an empire. But he has something else in mind that subverts the powers of this world. And it's called sacrifice. It's called surrender. It's something significantly contrary to the wisdom of this world because it totally flips it on its head. It subverts everything. I mean, this is the whole point of the cross. This was an execution device used to put people on so when people walked past, they would know not to mess with Rome. And here is the savior of the world on this cross saying, I'm going to actually subvert the powers of sin and death by giving myself over to them. So, I mean, what he's talking about here is, is, is uniquely, should be uniquely convicting, I think, in many ways. Because it was an empire that was far more anti-Christianity than anything that we've ever known. And I think even where we're at now, and I feel this pressure myself with our country, is that this is the first time where this, this dissonance is starting to take place within the values of Christianity and the values of something totally new for us. And yet, Paul's whole point is that even still, even still, God is in control. Even still, God is still sovereign. Even still, God is using the government for his purposes and he's going to always. Like there's still a level by which it will carry out his justice before he brings about perfect justice. And that's even how you see the end of chapter 12 blending into chapter 13, is that by love, that is how we subvert the powers of sin and darkness. And so the question is not how we can um, subvert our government when they seem to contradict our values. The question is how we can love those and, and show them the beauty of God so that just our world becomes changed by, by correlation. Now, one of the things I'm working on in the doctoral program that I'm in is specifically in regards to this question. Because we exist as subject, or Paul, or Paul is specifically talking about Christians who exist as subjects underneath the, go the government. But what we live in is not the same sort of empire that they do, right? And it would take a very, very long time before we would try this new thing called a democratic republic. 
Like this is a very new thing in history. Do you realize that? Like it wasn't up until like the Reformation when nation states really started to come into existence. And, you know, all of these new ideas of, of the equality of a human being, like these were new ideas that we, even we still have today. And the very unique part of what we exist in is not just that we're subjects. My whole point is I think that we're also rulers. That is the point of being in a democratic republic. Like Mark said, we're citizens. We're citizens that have the ability to employ our representatives. We're citizens who have the ability to vote for our legislation. And we can fire our representatives. And we can change our legislation. And we can be a part of this country and, and define the laws and then live under them. That is so entirely different than what he's talking about. He would have no idea that, that this type of arrangement could exist. Some sort of voluntary association that would ultimately culminate into uh, a, a nation with a covenant document that, that holds these truths to be self-evident about people. This is new entirely. And so what I think we have to recognize is not only how we should be good subjects of an empire, but how we should be good rulers of one. And that means actually engaging in the political issues. Now, I don't know that it's the church's place to, to, to say how you should cast a vote, but I do think it is the church's place to say that you should. Because justice, if, if God is going to use the government for justice, why would you not want to be a part of it? Why would you want to turn a blind eye to it? Knowing that your vote may actually mean life for another person. It might mean oppression ceases just a little bit less. So I know I'm like stirring the waters and I'm talking way too much, but I'm doing my doctoral program on this. So obviously I got a lot to say. So, so yeah, amen. A, a couple, I'd only say a couple of things about, like, it kind of seems like it comes out of nowhere a little bit. When you're reading through Romans, you're like, oh, some politics, but it doesn't for a couple of reasons. One, it's because it's always going to be an aspect of discipleship. That's why I've always been so excited about Elijah's passion and his interest in the, and, and we've all encouraged him to pursue this as a form of study and to really help us think through what it means to be the church faithfully in our political times. So it always is a thing, but also notice where it ends with, this is why you pay taxes. It's kind of, a, kind of an anticlimactic end, but it's not. Because in that context, remember, Jews and Gentiles, both, you know, Jew, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, trying to get along and be the church, and one of the reasons why the Roman Empire was very negative on the Jews is because they had a problem with the taxes, because they had a problem with the coins, because the coins had pagan emperors on them and pagan gods and goddesses on them. And so one of the ways that Gentile Christians could maintain unity and like keep their Jewish friends out of trouble is just pay your stinking taxes. And so part of what's going on here is Paul is saying, this is a way not only that you can show proper deference to God's sovereignty, amen, but actually he's calling for a form of political engagement that is very intentionally trying to do everything we can to continue to love one another. So um, I think it's valuable to see that Paul's interests are very specific to his context. And I think this is why, even though Elijah's right in saying that he's talking about a different political framework than what Paul was talking about, he's actually doing, trying to do the very same thing that Paul was doing in Romans 13. And so we're pretty excited about where it all goes. And it's about that time. So um, I'll just wrap it up with this. All of this is to love well. And that loving well happens because we have a clear vision of the one who loved us first. When we are seeing clearly the mercy of God and how it has displayed itself in the personal work of Jesus, you will start to embody the mercy of God in the same exact ways. 
allowing yourself to become the living sacrifice so that other people can find life in him. So I wanna pray for you guys. And then uh, we didn't get time for questions. So write those down, put them in the box and we'll see you next week. Father God, we are grateful for good conversations. God, we pray that uh, you just were moving in this one tonight and that you continue to be. God, we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom and discernment on how we navigate this world. Uh, we know that we won't always all agree on on what should be done. But Father, we know um, that as long as you're in control, we can rest. We can love each other and we can love others well. And God, we pray that that love continues to be what moves us and helps us engage your world well. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this class. We hope it helps you find completeness in Jesus. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.